Why can't a city be a work of art? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Sandy Iketa. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Sandy Iketa. Sandy is a professor and the coordinator of the economics program at Purchase College of the State University of New York and a visiting scholar and research associate at New York University. He has lectured in North America, Europe, and Japan, and his current research focuses on the relation between cities, social cooperation, and entrepreneurial development. Sandy, welcome to The Curious Task. Alex, it's good to be here. Sandy, in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. Our question today is, why can't a city be a work of art? But I think before we jump right into that, we should talk a bit about exactly what people mean when they say a city can be designed or should be regarded as art. Well, different people express it in different ways. Um, in the early 20th century, there was a something called the City Beautiful Movement in which uh, the uh, various architects and planners wanted to kind of mimic what was happening in Paris under Haussmann in the 19th century, you know, the beautiful boulevards and monuments and arches, statues, and so forth. Um, so beautiful in that kind of um, decorative way, um, where you have vistas, boulevards leading to particular sites and views. Um, Another sense of beauty is the um, getting rid of, of uh, for, for lack of a better word, messiness in cities, that uh, there's too much chaotic activity going on in cities, people going every which way, every which way, and, the, and uh, trash in the streets, there's noise, there's uh, smells, um, all kinds of different people doing weird things. So at that kind of... Um, you know, at the granular level, a kind of street-level messiness that uh, people didn't like. Um, and then more abstractly, there's a kind of messiness from like a bird's-eye view, where you look down at the city, and for one thing, you see kind of a, a planless sprawl going on. Things are happening in places where nobody thought they would happen, and some people didn't want them to happen. Um, you see buildings going up, and in ways that um, you know uh, traditionally were not were not appreciated, um, so things of that nature, um, and you know then that's in addition to or different from the idea that uh, you know, the city should have streets and walkways and plazas and and things like that 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 are are necessary for public life. Instead, city as a work of art is is where you have a particular vision. Someone has a particular vision that uh, they want to uh, create and in most cases impose on the urban fabric. So, so this is the idea that someone or a team of people, for instance, they, they sit around, they imagine how a city could work and they come up with all these different ideas about traffic flow and where buildings should go and ultimately it's all designed in their minds. That's what you mean when you say a city cannot be a work of art, but that's what they think it can be. Right. So that, uh, I mean, this is an old idea. You can go back to, to ancient Rome. Uh, there were planners there. Uh, and But it really got its... Um, uh, momentum in the late 19th, early 20th century with the rise of what some people call high modernism, the idea that you can apply engineering and scientific ideas to social orders and improve them. So people like uh, Le Corbusier, 
uh, Ebenezer Howard, Frank Lloyd Wright, these are the legendary urban designers and planners, had it in their mind that the cities as they saw them at that time were these chaotic, messy places that could be much improved if only the modern techniques of planning and statistical analysis and other uh, then blossoming sciences, physics, could be applied to um, improve the urban environment. Yeah, that's very interesting. One of the things I did to get prepared for, for our discussion today was I actually watched the uh, the Jane Jacobs documentary. And one of the things, and by the way, listeners, uh, Sandy is actually in that documentary for a period of time, so that's pretty cool. About 15 seconds, I think. I, I, I thought it was great, though. So <laughs> I did keep an eye out for you. Um, but yeah, like one thing that struck me as interesting is that I, I forget which uh, designer or builder it was that they focused on at the time. The name is escaping me, but uh, this person was inspired by taking a plane ride. And that's how they got the idea that a city was chaotic and disorganized is that they kind of went up in a plane. And I think one of the interviewees uh, in the documentary said, and before the wheels touched down, he had this idea that, oh, all this can be rearranged and done properly. So it's, it's interesting to me that a lot of people are getting this idea of what a city could be from that view as opposed to the street view. That's right. Yeah, I think and, well, you may be thinking of um, of Costa and Niemeyer, who were the uh, planner and principal architect of, of Brasilia, uh, which was um, a, a planned and wholly created capital of the country of Brazil. And this was um, the um, brainchild of the president of Brazil, Kubitschev. And this, this, this city, um, so-called, was uh, uh, built in about uh, 41, 42 months, something like that, in, in a, a jungle plateau, uh, far from the then capital, uh, which I think was Sao Paulo, because they thought it was too, uh, too crowded, too dense, um, too messy. So this is another uh, uh, dimension along which some people thought that cities were not as artistic as they should be. Cities uh, can have too big a population and we can therefore, or we should and we can, um, make them smaller by emptying them to some extent of population and putting them someplace else. But of course, you know, this is, you know, what we're um, seeing in, in different forms today um, in various planning movements that may not be as, you know, I don't know what the word is, large scale. Uh, maybe not as heavy-handed as the kind of designing and planning we saw in the 20th century, but the attitude that you can um, have a vision that is possible to impose on either a new site or the living flesh of an existing city and have it be successful. That idea that uh, a city can be a work of art in that sense is, is still very much alive and well today. One of the quotes I pulled from your your piece there, a city cannot be a work of art. Uh, you said, mega and giga projects tend to be more beautiful the farther away from them you are, right. while the deep beauty of a living city becomes visible up close on the street. Right. I, I mean, that's um, you know what you see in organic kinds of um, living forms that uh, sometimes in you are are far away from them, they, they don't look very special or unique, but when you come up and get to know them you know, better, uh, then, then the, the beauty really comes out. There's a superficial beauty, which is what you see from a bird's eye view, and there is a deeper beauty. And so, so when we say that a city you know, can't be a work of art or why a city can't be, well, uh, a work of art, it's not that they can't be beautiful in some sense, 
it's just what your, I guess, what your criteria for beauty uh, are and um, how you try to achieve that. There's certain kinds of beauty that um, uh, cannot be deliberately produced. And, uh, and another thing that I found that was very helpful in my understanding, everything that, that you talked about in your essay was you said that there's uh, a metaphor that you brought up, which was useful, which is the, the piazza versus the parade. And I found that very interesting. So I'm wondering if you right. could take everyone through that. Oh, sure. That, that's actually not my terminology. It comes from the economist Richard Wagner from George Mason University. But um, the distinction, I think, is, is uh, clear in, in people like Jane Jacobs and, and others that on the one hand, you have a parade, which is one of these um, forms that, again, looks, looks nice from a distance. It's, it's supposed to be seen from a distance. Um, or you think of a marching band at a halftime football uh, program in, in the United States. Right. Uh, there's various formations, and, and there's a distinct order that is created. And that's because each of the marchers has an assigned duty that they cannot stray from. They have to march so many steps forward, turn, and, and so on. And if there's any deviation from that, then the order uh, disintegrates. So we think of the order as something that is seen from a distance and is not what I would consider a deep order. If you've ever, I don't know when you would have an occasion to, but um, I have been in the middle of a marching band when it's uh, doing its formations, it, you know, at that level, you have no, there's no, there's no order going on. That's when you pan away, then, then you can see it. But the point there is that there are no real individuals, or there may be individuals, but there's no individuality that to the extent that people try to express their individ individuality, either in their movement or their dress, that destroys the, the order. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's the parade part. Uh, a piazza uh, also has an order. If you go to, um, in, to piazzas, various piazzas in like Siena or in, in Rome, uh, and you see how people are using that space, um, in different ways. Sometimes they're just strolling across it in groups. They may be sitting down, playing guitar. If there's a fountain, people may be waiting their feet in the fountain. Um, and so you don't, um, there's no obvious order that's going on there in the sense of a, in the sense of a parade or a marching band. But there is order in the following way that people are, um, peacefully coexisting with each other that um, there are certain rules that they are obeying. Now, those rules may be explicit, like, you know, you can't blast your radio so that nobody can hear what they're saying. Mm -hmm. okay? Or you might have a rule that says, uh, don't uh, be physically aggressive or, or shout or make loud noises. So you can list these various rules, but it's not uh, going to be anything like the rules and orders that uh, a member of a marching band has that have to be followed very explicitly. You cannot deviate from it. Uh, it's just the opposite. The order that emerges in a piazza comes from people following certain uh, limited number of rules, usually in some negative form. You know, you can't do this, you can't do that. So that anything else that's not prohibited, you can do, right? Right. So whereas in a marching band or, or a kind of uh, regimented order, uh, you, it, it's either... Um, mandated or forbidden in in the case of a piazza there are certain things that are 
probably forbidden, but there's, there's an unlimited range of things that you can do. And so the order that emerges there is unpredictable. You don't know exactly how people are going to use that space, where they're going to sit. Well, you may, you know, if there's a shade on a sunny day, you might be able to determine that some people will be there. Right. If there's seating uh, that you've uh, designed, they're probably going to be using that, which is, you know, probably a good thing to have in a public space. Uh, but exactly what's going to go on there, uh, whether there's going to be like a, a spontaneous dance or somebody's going to be giving a telling jokes or juggling or things like that. And then, you know, that those sorts of things uh, cannot be predicted. And, and it's, it's, it's precisely those things that make uh, the beauty of a piazza. Uh, the, the, you know, you're taking a risk that something that's going to happen is offensive or you're not going to like it. In which case, you either move on or you move to another another place. But at the same time, oftentimes there's there's things that you you do like in a piazza that that are attractive that uh, you wouldn't get in a more regimented situation. So um, so a city, you know, why can't a city be a a work of art? A city is more like a piazza. In fact, a city is like you know a a, a series of piazzas that are networked together, mm-hmm. or to put it. More generally, a series of public spaces uh, where you're uh, a public spaces where you're uh, likely to to meet people that you don't know that are strangers to you, um, and so that kind of piazza is uh, artist artistic in a very broad sense. It's beautiful, but it's not a work of art. It's not like a creation of somebody's um, mind. Right. And, and this is uh, th- that phrase: "A city cannot be a work of art." comes from uh, Jane Jacobs, the uh, great American urbanist, in her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And she has a chapter, <clears throat> I think it's on visual order, in which she makes that statement, a city cannot be a work of art, right? because she says, um, an artist basically, um, in her words, abstracts from reality. It, an artist removes certain elements from reality in order to express an idea, an image, uh, a feeling that comes from him or her. And it's very individual. And you, an, a work of art, generally speaking, is finished, right? You complete it, and you know there it is. It may take you a few seconds, it may take you years. But at some point, the artist determines that it has the elements that she wants, and it's complete, and that's it. And of course, a, a piazza or a city is not like that. It's, it's ongoing. It's a continuous process. And it's not the creation of a single mind, but it's the creation of many minds. You're not relying on the genius of one person, but on the genius of a collection of minds interacting with each other in ways that are wholly unpredictable. And as you said, ultimately, there, there is a form of order there. In, in, in your essay, the, A City Cannot Be a Work of Art, you also talk about that's an important to understand Friedrich Hayek's ideas in conjunction with this sort of discussion, right? Especially when oh, it yeah. comes to the concepts of spontaneous order. Sort of as you said, if you maybe take a bird's eye view and look at a split second of this quote, what some people may view as a mess of a piazza, you, you look at like, oh, what's going on over there? A marching band is nicer to look at. But as you said, we're, we're sort of watching spontaneous order in a way, in action in, in a piazza or in a city, as you said, which is effectively a collection of piazzas almost. Yeah, I, you know, the two things are happening simultaneously, which you can separate conceptually. One is complexity, and the other is spontaneity or emergence. 
Um, so in other words, you can deliberately create something that's highly complex, right? One individual, uh, if she's smart enough, could come up with a ingenious, um, you know, app or computer, uh, program and, and, and have something really intricate or compose, uh, a wonderful piece of music, um, you know, like a Mozart. So there's, there's complexity, uh, going on at that level, but the, the order of complexity in a social order is far, far, far beyond that. It's um, many uh, orders of magnitude greater because you're, you're dealing not only with one individual mind, which is complex enough, there's unpredictability in an individual mind, you don't know what that person is going to do, but when you have uh, an interaction of many people, as in a market or in the development of a custom or language or the law, over time, what comes out of that is a level of complexity that is uh, unimaginably uh, greater than that could emerge from an individual mind. Uh, Hayek uh, talks about complexity in terms of um, the minimum, the degree of complexity is the minimum number of elements that are necessary to define that class of objects. Okay, so, you know, you take it from there, how, what are the minimum number of elements that can define a city? It's, it's uh, almost uh, un unlistable. And even if you could list it in one moment, it's going to change in the very next moment. And the same could be said about markets and other social phenomena. Um, so the other thing I mentioned is the emergence of spontaneity. So that, that complexity at some level can be created. Um, intentionally uh, but a, a more complex order is usually or almost always an emergent one um, that is to say where the outcome is greater than the sum of the elements that constitute it right because the elements uh, interact in, in ways that uh, produce outcomes which cannot be traced back directly to those elements um, so Again, to take a simple example, uh, a chord in music, right? take a, a three-note chord, that chord produces an outcome which is, which is greater than each of those elements. So that's, but in, in the level of, of, of um, a social order, those things are emergent in the sense that nobody's creating that chord. Uh, it's, it's, it's more like a, a jazz ensemble than a symphony. You have a certain number of rules, uh, but then you can do anything within those rules and the, the solos and the harmonies um, the, and the, uh, the whole piece, really, the shape of it uh, comes out in ways that uh, is never the same way each time. And then you, you know, uh, level that up beyond uh, a jazz ensemble you know, to, to uh, a city, uh, then the, the kinds of things that are happening, because even though in a city which is full of these piazzas and public spaces, um, each one is doing different things. In some way or other, to a greater or lesser degree, these are all linked to each other. Okay, we think of the public space and stuff people are interacting, but also, you know, there's markets going on, trading prices that, that influence the entire city. There's also cultural stuff that's going on uh, in terms of language, in terms of, uh, in, in think of a longer term, think of beliefs that are evolving, a, a, uh, an ethos within a particular city at a particular time, uh, you know, these are incredibly, not only complex, but these are things that are emergent spontaneously, that are not planned, even though 
each of each of us is planning, right? We're each planning to go somewhere on a given day. We're each planning to buy something or sell something. We're each planning to form a sentence in a particular way. Right. But uh, you know, uh, the 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 spontaneity then exists, you know, at the next level. What what happens after one has planned a certain thing? The the consequences of that, how other people take that action and interpret it and use it or not is uh, is a, is spontaneous from the point of view of that original action right so it's a series of deliberate actions which together over time constitute uh, a spontaneous order right and as, as you said like in a city often you have millions of individuals each with individual preferences and things they just on a simple level just want to get done that day and, and what they're most concerned about is being able to have the you know get those things done uh, on a previous episode we talked to Adelaide Berto and I thought one thing that really stuck out in that conversation to me was that he said an urban planner should look to facilitate all these individuals, not arrange them in certain ways. I thought that was a very interesting takeaway from that conversation. I'm hearing that in what you're saying here as well. Yeah, that's right. The more thoughtful urban planners recognize uh, spontaneity and its importance, its centrality in um, the life uh, of cities. You can, um, you know, there's certain things that have to be planned. Uh, usually infrastructure, streets, you know, sewers and water supply and that sort of thing, uh, planned either by, you know, a central government or some kind of private governance system. These things need to be, uh, need to be planned at, at, at some point, transport. But, you know, where, uh, what people should do in a given space, um, you know, uh, land use planning in the sense that uh, if you're currently uh, using a space uh, as a residence, but then you cannot transform that space into anything else but a residence is, uh, uh, goes against that idea. Uh, it limits. Anytime you, you, know, you impose a, a limit, obviously it, it's going to reduce complexity and spontaneity. Right? You're, you're, you're substituting the mind of the planner, even if it's a, at, a, at the level of a, of a single you know, neighborhood or a, a zoning ordinance, mm-hmm. you're substituting the mind of that planner that regulator for the possibilities that are emergent from the interaction of many minds over time. So there's this, you know, there's a trade-off. What what I think another way to express that idea is uh, the ideally the, the the job of of a planner, any kind of planner. Where we're talking about the economy or or, 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 or cities, is you want to f- facilitate those kinds of interactions. Um, by uh, complementing what's happening, you want uh, you don't want the uh, the planner to substitute for what the market would do. Rather, you'd want the planner to to complement. Uh, and now, of course, there are certain things uh, like uh, aggressive acts, uh, theft, and, and murder, right. and those kinds of things, which um, y- you probably don't want. Uh, whoever is in charge uh, to be complimenting, right? So <laughs> yeah. you, 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 do, you do have a certain level of, um, of, of replacement and substitution there that, that is necessary. Again, this, I'm not saying that necessarily this, this happens in, in the private sphere as well as the public sphere. But um, uh, beyond that, I think the job quickly becomes, uh, well, how can what we're doing and I say this as somebody who hasn't, you know, can can barely put together a chair. I'm not a planner, uh, but as an economist, right? You mm-hmm. want to facilitate uh, other 
other minds in in discovering creative new ways to do things, which you know you probably won't approve of, at least not entirely. Um, I, there's I, somewhere I, I wrote um, something to the effect that uh, we were talking about great cities, the ones that have all this creativity and innovation, uh, trial and error experimentation, and messiness. Uh, cities, great cities, which attract great diversity of of people of all kinds of ideas and backgrounds and cultures um, and so forth, skills. Uh, any great city then that aspires, any city that aspires to greatness, should have something to offend everybody. Hmm. There's so much there that uh, either because uh, some people think it's messy or just think it's it's wrong and shouldn't be done. Uh, that's really what is char- what characterizes a, 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 a great city because of all the experimentation that that should be going on there. To me, it sounds like, you, as you termed it, the thoughtful urban planner should be looking at their job as creating a framework for things to work in, not trying to plan in the way sometimes we use the word in our everyday lives where we're going to do X, Y, and Z, you know, and then these three steps are going to be followed. That's not what good urban planning should be, in, it sounds like, from what you're saying. We're creating a framework. Right, right. I mean, or to, you know, um, the uh, Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises used to talk about uh, it's not, the question is not planning versus you know, planning versus no planning. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's really. Are you going to plan for freedom, or are you going to plan to impose a particular your will? Right. right? So you can plan for freedom. I think uh, a lot of us like that idea. Mm-hmm. You can ex- try out new ideas, individuality, recreate yourself, recreate whatever. Uh, so planning that facilitates that kind of thing, I think, is in general a good thing. And so, so far we've talked about uh, what a city is and what a city isn't and and the way, uh, again, I'll use the term because I liked it, the thoughtful urban planner should approach these sorts of things. Someone might turn around to you and say, well, well, Sandy, why can't we just plan out an entire city like that? Like, why not? And I think this is a great time for me to bring in uh, the concept of radical ignorance, which you also brought up in your essay, A City Cannot Be Work of Art. And I think if you, if you could elaborate into that problem that ultimately is the issue of radical ignorance, that this is yeah. why planners can't get into this kind of planning. Yeah, this, this will take us into a slightly different realm, but it will reflect back on urban planning. Um, the, the term radical ignorance comes from the uh, economist Israel Kersner. Actually, he uses the term sheer ignorance. And um, many years ago, I heard um, the late um, economist Don Lavoie use the term radical ignorance uh, a lot. And, uh, so I've used it myself. And, and and so what is that? What is that? What's radical ignorance as opposed to just sheer ignorance? Um, so in, in economics, uh, there is a concept of ignorance in, in mainstream standard economics, which has to do with knowledge that would be useful, uh, but is too expensive, too costly, right? So uh, sometimes I'll ask my students, um, how many of you in class right now uh, know what my home phone number is? Of course, nobody raises their hand. Right. And I said, what if I gave $20 to the first person who could tell me my home phone number? It's like, you know, they pull out their phone, and, they find it, and so 10 seconds later they have it. And I said, well, why didn't you know that before? She said, well, you didn't offer us $20. But of course, I don't actually give them $20. It's like, um, <laughs> um, uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's part of my heuristic. Um, but so that's the point. It wasn't worth it 
to them. I mean, they could have. There's all kinds of things that they don't know, but they choose not to know it because it's too costly. Right. So there's that kind of ignorance. Um, the other kind of ignorance, the, the sheer ignorance or the radical ignorance uh, that we speak of here has to do with um, not knowing something, but not knowing that you don't know it. Right. So there's there's a kind of not knowing in the sense of not knowing my home phone number, but, you know, safe to assume that I do have a phone home phone number or, or a mobile phone number or something like that uh, and not choosing to know it. But not even knowing the concept of home phone number or personal mobile phone number or something like that. Um, those kinds of things. So the example of that would be I would say, well, um, in a room of, of 50 students, uh, how many of you, uh, I live near, um, I teach near New York City, I live in Brooklyn, but I teach near New York City, and I say, how many of you this weekend uh, need a ride to, to Manhattan, Midtown Manhattan? And people will raise their hand. And uh, I would say, well, I, I can pretty much guarantee you that there are other people in the classroom right now who would be willing to take you for a sum that you could agree on, whatever that may be, but you just don't know it. Right? They could be sitting right next to you. But you don't know it. Right? Now that I've alerted to it to you, you might be aware or try to make yourself aware by searching that such a person exists. So, you know, before uh, presenting that as an option, a lot of people won't even think about that. Or uh, in in general, a profit opportunity uh, where uh, a benefit benefits exceed costs. These are opportunities that are not uh, known. That these things have to be discovered. Uh, if you knew them, then you'd already have exploited them. They wouldn't be profit opportunities anymore. They'd all be disappeared. Right. Okay, so what does that have to do with urban planning? The question is, why can't uh, planners plan cities? The answer is, you can, right? You can plan um, a city uh, that uh, has roads, has buildings, that uh, people can occupy for residences, for commercial purposes, for entertainment, um, you could have stores, uh, at least spaces for these things. You can, um, design public areas. You can design transport. Then the question is, uh, will people use these things? Or in other words, is there something there to attract people to those facilities? And will they stay there long enough? to make it meaningful or to make, to make a community. Right? This uh, city is not simply the built environment. It's the interaction between the built environment and the people and the social orders, the networks and so forth that are um, embedded in, within that city. And it's that latter thing that is difficult, or I would say impossible to, to create. Um, when uh, Kubitschev created Brasilia, uh, he was able to populate it almost immediately because he ordered all of his bureaucrats to move from Sao Paulo to Brasilia. Right? So they had to go or lose their jobs. And so it was a city in the sense that people were living in them and using these facilities. But at least in the early years of, of Brasilia, it would be deserted. In, on the weekends. Why will people fly back to Sao Paulo where there was life, there's entertainment, you know, streets and uh, vivacity, whereas Brazil would, would be uh, 
you know, much like the post office on weekends, there's nobody there. So that's, it's, it's possible to create the, the trappings of a city. But a city, or what I like to call a living city, is one in which there is this uh, uh, messiness, this trial and error, this experimentation, which um, can lead to creativity, um, but uh, in unpredictable ways. You know, when we say creativity, you know, if, if some, all of us to some extent have uh, participated in something, some creative activity, whether it's music or art or writing an essay or thing like that, it, it's it's difficult. You 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 uh, you try something uh, and you know have an idea maybe, and you try something and it doesn't work out, and you try to modify it and. You fail, you try again, you fail. And sometimes you give up and you leave what you, you know, the detritus of previous experiments. You try something new. Well, you put all that with a lot of people, and this is a lot of messiness, right? There's, uh, you don't, when you come to a city uh, that's already existing, like New York or London, um, you have a certain idea of what you want to do, but you're you're ignorant in this radical ignorant way of what exactly that's going to what that's going to be. I mean, you may have a pretty specific idea. I'm going to go to New York to become a Broadway star. Probably, what you end up doing will be different from that, mm-hmm. and you probably would not think of that what you ultimately are doing will be, you know, what you thought it would be. <laughs> so. Uh, and that's 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 not knowing that you don't know, right? right? That's that's the lure of city. So uh, the the bureaucrats who migrated to Brasilia pretty much knew what they'd be doing, right? Because they had they do the same job in Brasilia as they did in Sao Paulo, more or less. Of course, that evolves over time too. But when we think about opportunity, you're not commanded to go there, but you're actually attracted. That's because you, you you don't know. It's the uncertainty that attracts you. Um, as, as, as well as the promise of fulfilling uh, dreams that you think you might do. Right. right? So ignorance it plays an extremely important role in the, in, in the creation of cities. Um, if, if I just could, could go on a bit more. Of course. People in cities do a good job of solving problems, like uh, uh, conflicts between neighbors, property rights problems, uh, getting food, disposing of waste, and, and things like that. Uh, to a large degree successfully, otherwise we wouldn't have cities uh, the way we do. Of course, there's always problems. But the way I like to think about about it is that cities are good not only at solving problems but at creating problems. That is to say, you you know we have problems of getting um, enough uh, water supply, getting enough uh, uh, waste removal, and things like that. Well, these are problems that emerge from people pursuing these opportunities pursuing their dreams, wanting to make those dreams come true. These, these are obstacles that, that need to be overcome that are created in the process of pursuing those dreams. And then, you know, there's the jobs that you try and you fail and some businesses try and fail. That's part of it too. Um, and this, this trial and error, this experimentation is going on precisely because of, of radical ignorance and uncertainty. The cities exist in a sense because of radical ignorance and, and uncertainty. It's, it's the same, and, and for the same reason that, that markets exist and uh, are dynamic and, and uh, ongoing processes uh, because uh, of radical ignorance, right? If we all had perfect information, you really wouldn't need markets. Right? Right. You just, <laughs> everything would be accessible to you uh, 
at, and you know what the prices are. And I mean, it just, it, it's an almost impossibly ideal conception to make. But, you know, you'd have something that looked like markets, but they wouldn't function like we think of markets, supply and demand and competition and all of that. It's the same thing for cities, right? You can't create a city, a living city, uh, in the same way that you can create a work of art because it is something that is a process that is intended to remove this uncertainty that you that you have. And I think that's great. And I, I think that's also a great place to take our, our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, uh, you're listening to The Curious Task, and we're talking with Sandy Ikeda. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Bryce Tingle, Christopher McDonald, and Daniel Beer. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. I'm talking with Sandy Ikeda today. Sandy, before the break, we were talking about the issue of uh, the concept, I should say, of, of radical ignorance. And ultimately, I guess this is what we're saying is this is a, a concept that uh, the urban planners, they, they, they can't shake. This, this, is, this is ultimately a core concept of what a city is. People operate with radical ignorance every day. And, uh, and also as well, that's what the urban planners have too. They, they don't know what they don't know. So how can they sit down and create basically a canvas of a city? You know, what um, infected a lot of ambitious urban planners in, in the 20th century, and, and indeed today, uh, is the same thing that infected planners of macroeconomies uh, in the 20th century, mm. um, collectivist, socialist, communist, whatever you want, fascist uh, economies that were uh, attempted to be central plan. Uh, urban planning and the problems that confront urban planning are just a, 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 another manifestation of this problem of central planning that um, people like Mises and Hayek identified and criticized with respect to the socialist calculation debate in the early um, 20th century. Right? And so that is, um, yes, uh, markets are imperfect. Uh, that's That's part of why we have competition in market processes to try to remove as many imperfections. Uh, but even at the same time, markets do create these problems and imperfections that, that need to be removed. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's that same, it's that same phenomenon. Um, and we've seen how that kind of heavy handed central planning of the macroeconomy ultimately failed. Um, all over the world, and it, uh, most spectacularly, uh, the Soviet Union. But we see it, had, you know, failed in the People's Republic of China uh, and elsewhere. Most recently in Venezuela, and you know, it still happens. Right, Venezuela is still with us, whereas the, the Soviet mm -hmm. Union collapsed in early 1990s. And you would think, well, you know, you know, what what's going on here? Radical. We all we're all radically ignorant. Right? We all live in bubbles, uh, and it's unavoidable. Really, we we uh, have to uh, live and make decisions, and we have to. We can't sit around and have all of the uh, knowledge available to us, which is impossible. But you know, even even you know, uh, uh, 
having uh, uh, relevant all the relevant knowledge is is not possible. So in other words, we, we make decisions and we make mistakes. It's it's the hubris of central planning though that that causes the problems, right? It's that people are passionate about something that they have the answer, right? And therefore, it has to be uh, you know their way or the highway. And this is evident not only in in economics and, and collectivist uh, central planning, but also in the early planners, right? You you read uh, Corbusier or you read Frank Lloyd Wright's writings. Uh, it's it's very clear that they have they're certain that they know what the problems of urban life are, um, just as as uh, uh, the early socialist planners uh, were certain. What the problem, what the problems are, and today, right? What are the major problems of the world? It's it's this you know inequality. It's uh, what a racism, sexism, uh, which is not to not deny that these are problems, but you know you focus on one thing and make that the problem, and then you come with the you have the hubris of thinking you have the answer. One example that comes to mind is in the documentary Citizen Jane, where they talked about the housing projects, right? And they showed some clips from the uh, promotional, and I'll just call them propaganda films for these housing developments. And, you know, they say, ah, oh, look at these people. They're living in these great towers. There's a there's a common area in the middle. People can play and enjoy themselves here. And you, you skip yeah. ahead a few years, and nobody's playing and enjoying themselves there. Uh, <laughs> and most yeah. of these places are dilapidated, and no one wants to use the spaces constructed for them. Uh, why? Because it's ultimately implied no one can plan for that. You can't you can't build character, as you alluded to in the first half. Cities and uh, neighborhoods build character and uh, attitude and things like that organically. You can't plan mm-hmm. for someone to have fun over there. Right. Yeah, there's, it's, you know, there's a trade-off, right, between complexity and spontaneity and creativity on the one hand and the degree of design that you are implementing, how intricate it is, that you where you want people to go and what you want them to do, and the scale of that design. Um, I was recently in London, and a friend of mine took me uh, around London, and in particular, she took me to the Barbican Center, which is a massive, brutalist architectural center uh, right in Zone One, right in, in central London. Uh, it was my. I understand that it was. Uh, built um, starting in the 1970s with a housing project that um, was located in an area that was bombed during World War II. So uh, most of the the city uh, was uh, destroyed in that area. Uh, And so they they built these high-rise, architecturally brutalist, uh, uh, residences, and then in the ensuing decades, they've added uh, different components: um, a, a, a civic center, a museum, uh, meeting areas, auditoriums, uh, and things like that. So it's it's quite uh, quite a complex. A lot of thing going on there. You have, you have mixed what what the planners like to call mixed use: right? residential, commercial, entertainment. But it's big. It's 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 uh, I. I don't know how many acres it, it, it is, but uh, you know it would dominate most um, most towns and cities uh, in the world. The thing about that, so it was obviously somebody's plan, um, maybe a, a team of people working over over many years, which grew in a certain way, but it's embedded in the fabric 
of central London. Uh, for example, St. Paul's Cathedral is, is a stone's throw away from there. Um, and then, you know, uh, uh, Fleet Street is, is, is very close. And the city, it's, it's actually in the city or the financial district of London. So in other words, it's located in a place that has a great deal of vitality. It's like, you know, taking, um, you know, a part of, of your body and, and removing a chunk of it and putting something artificial there. Well, if what's going on around your body, you know, if it's not too big a piece relative to your body, uh, it, it can be sustained. That is, and it can, you know, it can heal in a way that uh, maybe uh, doesn't disrupt the entire uh, uh, body. I think it, it would. It, now, again, this was an area that was bombed. Right. So, right. so there was a, you know, almost anything would have been better than the rubble that was, that was left there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but I guess the point is there are these different kinds of, of, of projects that are large scale that are designed by, you know, well-intentioned people that are subject to all these, these limitations that we were talking about earlier, right? That cities can't be a work of art, that there's a straight off in creativity and so forth and design and scale. But, you know, if it's not too big relative to the surrounding area, I mean, it could be, it could be massive like the Barbican Center. But if, if you're talking about the city of London, right, it, it can withstand uh, some of these things. Uh, the problem then arises then is to think, well, this is, you know, if the Barbican Center can work here, we can use this idea and, and put it elsewhere. And the answer is no, you can't. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's this partic particular set of circumstances that exist uh, where it lies that it cannot be necessarily replicated anywhere else, particularly if that other place is not a lively, vital, wealthy area uh, of the city of London. Um, so you can try to do these things. And one, one other uh, example I can give you from recent experience, I was in Guatemala giving some lectures recently, and I was taken to, in fact, I took my whole class um, to a development by what's called uh, new urbanism. Uh, it's hard to encapsulate what new urbanism is, but it's, 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 a, um, it's a design and planning movement that attempts to build communities based on um, historical experience of what communities have been. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, this particular uh, uh, development is just called Kayala. Uh, it was designed by a new urbanist architect named Leon Creer, K-R-I-E-R. -E and um, it's, it's, on, uh, it's a very large development. Uh, again, I, if I guessed, I would say, oh, uh, 15, 20 acres. But it's not located in the city of Guatemala per se, it's sort of, it's in the city, but it's it's set in an area that is not linked to the city. Um, Kayala has, it, your first impression in walking around is you're, you're, you're in kind of a Renaissance city. The um, buildings are no more than five stories tall, often shorter. There is a central public hall. I think there's a cathedral that was built some distance away. There are stores that are arcaded. There are residences. There are single-family homes. This is all designed and put into a space, and it's like it's white. 
it's like, I think it's some people call it the white city. It's, it's, uh, you know, lovely architecturally. And the architecture, again, harkens to, uh, you know, Renaissance and post Renaissance European styles. Well, not, not in one particular style. So one feels comfortable. And this is, this is, I think, characteristic of a lot of new urbanist designs. They, they try to draw on the, uh, historical references at the particular location. So it's not like cookie cutter, one thing after another. So, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's a development that in some ways, uh, looks like a city and functions like a city. Um, the problem is from, from what I understand, talking to an architect who worked with the firm that helped to build Kayala, uh, not too many people live there. Um, mm. and, I think the reason is uh, it, getting from Kayala to the rest of Guatem- Guatemala City is a little bit difficult. Um, it's, you know, it, it, there's a lot of bad traffic uh, in the city itself. Uh, but I think it's, in a way, it's designed to be separate from. Um, Guatemala as a country has a 60% poverty rate. Uh, Guatemala City has a great deal reflects that, that 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 poverty and so this is for the rich and it, i think it's intentionally i'm guessing i could be wrong it's it it's not welcoming to strangers right it's, you cut off you know, a great deal of population you can't go there i think if somebody's tried to to to, to pedal pedal tortillas on the, on the uh, streets there they'd probably be kicked out okay even, even though that happens all the time in the streets of guatemala city so it's this kind of design. This is this is a nice, you know, uh, what somebody's idea of of a nice uh, uh, city within a city would be. And so it's not it's not working. I mean, uh, maybe in thirty or forty years it could get integrated within the city somehow, but you know, connectedness and knitted in somehow. But it's 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 not really. Uh, so to call it a city, people kept referring to it as a city. You know, it's not a city. It's it's like a really it's a glorified mall. Um, it's a nice place to spend a day or an evening, you know, walking around, going to, going to shows. There's many nice restaurants and coffee houses, uh, but then you leave. Right? Um, you don't want to. You don't want to stick around there. So you know, there are other places in Guatemala you can go uh, in the evening to have a good time. Not necessarily there. Right. So again, this is another example. It goes back to a lot of what we we're saying before as well, and, and implied through other things we we're saying, which is when we talk about opportunity and community, these aren't things that can be planned or, or drawn out and then built. This right. things that happen over time and, and over generations. And and uh, one thing I really liked about things you alluded to in, in your essay, "A City Cannot Be Work Hard," and also the Citizen Jane documentary, which I watched as well and really enjoyed, was was exactly that point. It really kind of saddened me when I saw that a lot of like you know people like Robert Moses and people that planners that want to create developments, it saddened me to see that uh, a lot of what they wanted to do is completely wipe away what already existed as well. Not not mm-hmm. simply build and say, oh, there's a few acres over there, let's start mm-hmm. new there. It was also about wiping away things that right. existed and destroying. So uh, that's also another problem, I guess, as well. We could probably do a whole episode on that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. but you know, whether you're, as you as you said, trying to do this build it and they will come mentality or sort of wipe away character and, and build it back up. It, it does not seem to work. And I think there's a lot of examples of, of that. I mean, this is not to say that um, the, the neighborhoods that Moses uh, wiped away, as you say, didn't have, uh, you know, problems that the, there are so social pathologies there. Right. 
uh, you know, poverty or, or crime or both and things like that. Um, so sometimes they identify the problems which are legitimate problems. The, you know, uh, the criticism though is in the response, how do you solve these problems? And, and Jane Jacobs, um, uh, criticism was that, well, in order to, to fix the city, you have to understand how it works. In order to, to um, help a patient, you have to first understand, you know, why she's sick. And Jacob's criticism of the urbanists, of the uh, urban planners of her time is that they didn't bother to understand uh, how a city works. That, you know, they, they thought that, well, or to put it differently, they thought they knew. Mm-hmm. And it was a very simplistic uh, way of looking at cities, which didn't involve a lot of complexity. So, no, the problem, and with Moses, a lot of the problem had to do with uh, lack of, of play areas that uh, kids were on the streets and this was bad. And so you have to move them into, uh, you have to create playgrounds and parks where um, where they could, you know, blow off steam or, or get exercise and things like that. And he was uh, doing these things in mid-20th century and this reflecting attitudes of a Corbusier who also was trying to, uh, 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 inject elements of, of, you know, modern science into modern, you know, at that time, uh, in, into uh, the, the discipline of, of urban planning. So, you know, it was from, from Jacob's, Jacobs's perspective, this is wrong, not necessarily because their intentions were wrong, but because they, they really uh, have to go onto the streets where people are actively living and see how these spaces are being used. And so if there's crime, for example, um, you need to understand why there is crime. Well, I mean, right. in a very simple way, um, oftentimes crime occurs where there's no public life, where, where uh, there are people, uh, not many people, and um, you're not going to be seen. So uh, if you're not seen, you're more likely to do things that are uh, illegal or um, aggressive and antisocial than if, than if people are watching you. Even, even if these people are strangers to you, right? If you feel more uh, uh, comfortable, I guess, in, in, in committing a crime if nobody's, if nobody's watching you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes, I think, also for surveillance cameras, even though, as we know, they're getting more and more sophisticated. Just knowing you know, that there's a camera on you could have some effect, but it's not like having a person watching you. Right. <laughs> so that's a different kind of, that's a different kind of animal. So, so Jacob said, well, then, so then the problem of, of you know, if you're going to try to defeat crime, then people, in other words, people need to feel safe from crime on streets. How do you do that? Well, you get people on the streets. Right. You know, so then the question is, well, how do you get people on the streets? Well, you have to have things there to attract people. Mm-hmm. At not only you know from nine a.m. to five p.m., but but also in the evening, you know when it's dark and on the weekends and when the weather's cold and and or too hot or whatever. Uh, so this is where she comes up with the idea that you have to have multiple what she called primary uses, multiple things that would bring people into a neighborhood, like residents, you know, residential use brings people in the evening and at night. Uh, commercial use brings people in during the day. If you have entertainment. That brings people in the evening. Bars are good for that. Weekends, sports, entertainment. Right. That. So if you have that in a particular location, then you've got people on the street at different times of the day. And she said, well, look, this is what cities have been doing naturally 
throughout their history, right? They didn't have the kind of zoning that existed in the United States really beginning about 1960, according to, mm-hmm. to people that, that uh, are more knowledgeable than me about the history of zoning. That in 1960, the, the, I mean, there's always been, well, there's been zoning in the United States from early on, and particularly in the 20s and 30s. Uh, but in the 60s, something changed. There was this idea that uh, you know, planning uh, for extensive planning for use, you know, how you could use these spaces, something we were talking about early on in this program, uh, you know, transforming a residence into commercial or, you know, using a commercial that's, that's you know, supposed to be a hardware store, turning it into a beauty salon. No, nah, you can't do that, right? You have to have right. special fish. Uh, that kind of thing is relatively new. That didn't exist uh well uh, you know here and there but as a policy uh, didn't really exist and so this is what would uh, jane jacobs uh, really railed against uh, this kind of specific functional zoning that prevented the kind of mixing of attractors precisely that would make safe street uh, uh, public spaces and streets safer uh, and and reduce things like crime. And and one thing I noticed that's very interesting, if you look at sort of these old clips that do exist in video of like, you know, New York street life and things like that, is people are, as you were saying, people are there hanging out and there are eyes on the street because it, it's functional. There's a functioning community. Some people are going to the deli. Some people are head, hitting up that street stand to buy some fruit. Other kids right. are just playing in the street because their house is so close to the street. That's what they do. Right. It's not that people said, oh, it's, it's my neighborhood watch shift. I'm going to look at the street, right? <laughs> so it's exactly as you yeah. said, this is organic. Organic. Yeah, people attract people, right? You, right. One of the main things that you like to do is watch other people, even if you're not particularly paying attention to what they're doing. It's just mm-hmm. you like when they're when they're people. This is a bugaboo I have when I watch movies and uh, like uh, science fiction movies or 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 uh, um, oh, what's the name of the movie with the Iron Man? The Avengers movies, yeah. And and the 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 very sophisticated African city. A Black Panther. That that Wakanda. Wakanda, thank you very much. Yes, Wakanda. And so this is one example. I can give you uh, several others, but you know, I watched that movie, and you know, you look at it. It's the, the busy streets. It's just uh, technically sophisticated. It, it's amazing place, but it's cut off. Right? It's got this force field, mm-hmm. and, and like it sells one product, this uh, vibranium or whatever it's called. It has one product, one export. And I think this this can't happen, right? This this <laughs> I. I I, I object to it both as an urbanist, uh, uh, knowing the importance of diversity and contact, and as an economist, right? right. Where you have to have trade. You can't get this wealthy without extensive trade, and you can't have extensive trade being cut off like this. So it's like mm-hmm. it's really weird. The other example would be like uh, in the um, Fellowship of the Ring, uh, where uh, uh, the capital of the uh, of, of Rohan, the, this 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 mountain top. Uh, a city uh, that they they filmed on on a hill, and it's got all these, uh, uh, you know, it's got villagers, it has structures, it has a big uh, uh, sort of public hall in it, and, and so forth. But it, it's on this hill, and then there's nothing around it. Right? There's just like this desolate thing <laughs> around. It. I said, well, you know, and they've got they have barrels of apples and all kinds of things. Where the hell did you get these apples? <laughs> yeah. and, and 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 who are you trade? Where are the roads here? Yeah. So, I, it's, so anyway, it, it's you know people have now. This is not just silly. I even though it is sometimes silly. You know, people have a certain idea of what an ideal city is. And it's like this clean city on a hill, sometimes literally. Mm-hmm. 
that is surrounded by this natural environment and and unfortunately it, it you know just doesn't work that way it, it, it's it, the environment around it's going to be sprawl it's going to be kind of messy the roads people coming in in and out all the time it's noisy smelly uh and sure they're going to be beautiful things about it um but they're going to be these really ugly messy things that are going on all the time because again people are are, are seeking they don't know they're experimenting trial and error things are changing this construction reconstruction tearing down rebuilding amidst all this you know beauty that may emerge from it so there as i said before there's something to offend everybody in any living city right and there has to be otherwise either we all have exactly the same taste and we know that's not true or it's not a city it's disneyland right. or it's it's kaya I'm, I'm sorry i don't I'm my guatemalan friends i hope they don't hate me for using <laughs> that's just one example uh that that's stuck in my mind recently yeah it's funny that you mentioned disney because that's actually what i thought of when you talked about oh it might be you know you might spend a night in some of these places but you're not going to spend your life there it doesn't scream right. opportunity to you if anyone's uh and you as well if you've ever been to like uh, orlando where they have like the universal city walk and uh and then D- disney itself which owns all this land and it feels like you're going into a made-up city with different sections and stuff. That's exactly right. It's 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 sterile to some degree in that way. Like you can go there, have fun, go to a bar, go see a movie, do all these activities. But all every time I go there, a place like that, I think to myself, you know, it's time to go to back to like a real city. And I kind of uh-huh. didn't really know exactly what I I felt by that until I started reading your stuff and getting prepared for this this uh, episode here. So that's that's really cool. You mentioned Disney because that's what I thought of when yeah, you were describing yeah. that. I mean, it's key that you have people who want to stay there, right? Residents, residential use, I think, is 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 key. Um, but in order for people to want to live there and stay there, there have to be uh, opportunities and interesting things for them to do, like work. And mm-hmm. they have to be able to get to work. There. So there has to be mobility. And they have to be able to afford to, to live where they are. So there has to be affordability. So these things... Um, and I'm, I, I learned a great deal in the last couple of years from reading the work of the, the great urban planner, Alain Berthaud. He's published a book in um, 2018 called Order Without Design. And uh, this, this is a, a, a man who's at the top of his uh, profession in planning. He's been a, he's worked for the, he was the chief planner for the World Bank. He's consulted all over the world and he appreciates that uh, what urban planners can do is is limited, and mm-hmm. for any city to be uh, uh, to thrive, it you have to have markets that to determine use and often um, uh, where things happen. Okay, so what markets often do and have done historically is to provide affordable housing and to provide mobility uh, in different ways. Um, housing affordability has become a really big issue. Uh, of late everywhere. It's always been to some extent, but you know, not to the extent that you see today in New York City, London, Vancouver, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, it's a, it's a problem. I think Toronto and Ottawa, it's probably the same as, as well. Um, and this is a function not only of demand that is, you know, lots of people want to come and live in places, but it's also, I think more importantly, uh, a function of supply. And I say more importantly because there are a lot of regulations and restrictions on where you can build. Uh, when we say affordable housing, you know, it's like, you know, affordable cars. The, the, the cheaper the car, uh, the less nice it is. I mean, you want a car to be safe. Maybe you have to be minimum standards for, for, for safety in a car. Uh, but the, the higher you raise the standards 
of of you know of cars or in the case of housing um, the, the the amenities that it has to have the square footage especially then the more expensive it's going to become and you there and you price the, uh, the housing out of the reaches of the least um, uh, able and the poorest of, of the market so uh, and the poor are, are, are always attracted to cities because again that's where opportunities are and so the city has to provide affordable housing to the poor uh, and this is uh, what has been done um, uh, historically by having what are you know substandard housing that is housing that's below what sort of middle class uh, people would tolerate and you know having myself grown up in a kind of substandard housing environment uh, well when you're little you don't really notice it but then you look back and you think oh my gosh I had to deal with you know all these sorts of horrible things uh, but it allows you to get a foothold and so if if housing is affordable if supply is able to uh, be created and, and meet demand then you can move from one place to another it's possible uh, to, to do that and Mobility in that sense is extremely important. So you can change jobs, you can move closer mm-hmm. to a new job and advance in that way. If, if you're stuck, you know, for example, in public housing, there's certain means tests. If you, if you earn above a certain income, you have to, you, you have to leave. And so the incentive is not, not to, not to earn above that income. Right. But that, that's terrible because if, if a job opens up that's far away, you know, it's too expensive to get there you probably won't take it. And that just cuts off your opportunities uh, like that. So it's, you know, public housing is not something that uh, is uh, going to uh, solve the problem of housing affordability. Uh, we talked about a lot what a city is, what urban planners can and can't do. In your essay, you, you did talk about, and I'm just switching to it now, you said it's, it's, it's not that certain uh, elements of planning can't accentuate or at least uh, enhance a city. So I was wondering if you could just quickly name a few uh, of these elements that you may be referring to that can enhance a city, just so our listeners can think a little bit about that as, as our time's almost up here. Yeah, sure. I, you know, uh, again, when we say uh, planning, it could be a, a private planning, it could be governmental planning. I think providing safety is, is crucial here. Um, and, and it can be done in the way that uh, Jacobs advocates by making interesting public spaces. Um, providing um, various forms of mobility is important, and this could include roads. And so if you uh, plan, you know, uh, plan roads or a road grid in one way or another, that, that can facilitate uh, future planning. Again, this can be done privately as well as publicly. Um, but you know, beyond that, those basic infrastructural things, uh, which I think are very you know crucial, um, you know, there's not too much more that you can advocate to do because, again, things we we're talking about earlier about uh, what it, what what constitutes a living city uh, would not be able would not be able to emerge. But I, I think you know, it's just a um, safety is extremely important, and then uh, allowing individuals to address problems in creative and unusual ways. In, in New York City, for example, um, we have for, you know, in, in sort of nascent um, uh, transportation solutions. We've, we've had Uber and Lyft and, and Via and these kinds of things, but then we also have a, a sort of a kind of rigid bicycle program that's, uh, you know, it's nice for a step. We have now elect- 
electric scooters that are uh, rentable, but that's, you know, the city is not allowing that to, to happen on a large scale. They want uh, like a year or two years of experimentation. And, you know, that kind of thing, uh, you know, I can understand the rationale for that, but they're all, you know, this indicates that there are all kinds of things that are possible in solving transport problems and mobility that uh, are not being allowed to do. So I think the main thing that a city can do is to identify those limited things that can and should do, and then just stay out of the way and let you know the creative energies of ordinary resourceful people address problems that they face in ways that you know public officials and authorities may not even be aware. Our, our time is is out here, but uh, we like to always end our episodes with the guests essentially having the last word. So. Zandi, uh, ultimately, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you on why a city can't be a work of art? I know it's hard, but if we can almost make our discussion a little more concise, what would be the main takeaway here? A city is not a man-made thing. You know, people create the elements of a city, but what we uh, appreciate most about a city are things that are unintended consequences that are creative and unpredictable, both good and bad. You bring all that thing together, uh, you have a city. You have strangers coming together who would otherwise be hostile to one another, and they trade or they tolerate each other where they would not otherwise do that. So, you know, that's something to really, if you appreciate that about cities, that it cannot be a work of art, that it's not really a man-made thing or an artificial thing, um, then I think you can go pretty far and uh, not not damaging cities and in fact maybe enhancing them in some positive way. Sandy Ikeda, thank you very much for joining me today on The Curious Task. My pleasure, Alex. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.